So what comes to mind when I use the word Pentecostal? Kind of thing comes into your head. Would you describe yourself as a Pentecostal? Would you describe Providence Presbyterian Church to your friends or family as a as a Pentecostal church? I think those, perhaps even those of you here who might be more amicable amicable to a self-descriptor like Pentecostal might say, no, this is not a Pentecostal church. And in fact, I'm not sure that they even believe in the Holy Spirit. I have a friend who's a Presbyterian pastor in the uh, Midwest, and he was uh, invited to a, a prayer meeting uh, with a bunch of other ministers from the area. And when he arrived at this meeting, he realized that he was the only Presbyterian uh, there and that all the other pastors were uh, Pentecostal and charismatic pastors. And so they began to pray together and uh, these other ministers uh, were, were speaking in tongues and, and prophesying. And uh, my, my friend said he, he prayed a prayer that to them seemed awful dry. Um, and at the end of the prayer meeting, one of the uh, men came to him and said, brother, would you like to receive the Holy Spirit? To which he responded, it's all right. Presbyterians have been doing fine without the Holy Spirit for generations. But that's often the idea, isn't it? We have certain ideas about who the Spirit is and how he works. That the Spirit is often associated with miraculous gifts of tongues, prophecy, healing, and so he is, as we see here in Acts 2. At the very least, I think we often associate the Holy Spirit with some sense of, of, of spontaneity, that organization and structure are, are, are not spiritual, that is not of the Holy Spirit. Well, in our time together this morning, my, my aim is not to dismantle different understandings of the Holy Spirit, but to really emphasize his important work, the uniqueness of this event that we read about in Acts 2, but also Lord willing to see that this same spirit is still doing miraculous work among us here, now, today, even in Presbyterian churches. So the first thing I want to consider together is a foreshadowing of Pentecost. Well, if we Look at our text this morning, the, the author here, Luke, the first thing that he says to us is when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, were they all together in one place waiting for the Holy Spirit? Well, that is indeed true. If you'll remember our text from last week, the directive to the disciples was wait here for this gift of power from on high will come to you. So they're certainly waiting for whatever this gift of, of power is. But, but Luke's point in mentioning Pentecost here has more to do with the reality that at this time and place, Jews were in Jerusalem to celebrate the pilgrim feast of Pentecost or what is commonly known as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Ingathering. This is a festival that is established in Leviticus that comes 50 days, uh, hence Penta, after the Passover celebration. And this festival was akin to a, a harvest fest where, where the people would give thanks for the abundant gift of the harvest from that year and, and God's providence and care in their land. 
Well, Luke, as is a custom for gospel writers, seeks to set redemptive acts on days in Israel's calendar. We're, we're pretty accustomed to seeing this, especially with the Passover, as the gospel writers are seeking constantly to tie the death of Jesus to the Passover festival for Israel, the day where they celebrate their salvation coming out of the land of Egypt, where they have killed a Passover lamb and the, the blood of that lamb is, is put onto their door. And when the angel of the Lord sees this blood, he, he passes over and does not bring judgment upon that house. And the Israelites would, would celebrate this reality every year. Well, in Jesus, we see that he too is our Passover. That this Passover in the Old Testament points to a much greater Passover in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Paul makes this explicit, that Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. In fact, Jesus will go on as we'll see later and taste later that he transforms this Passover meal to a meal of of the new covenant. Well, similarly, the New Testament authors tie Christ's resurrection to another feast, the Feast of First Fruits. You'll see in the New Testament how Jesus' resurrection is, is talked about as first fruits of new creation, that he is the first of many who will be resurrected. So we see these festivals lined up. Well, similarly, here in Acts 2, 50 days after Christ's death on Passover, Israel's calendar has landed on Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And Luke wants to have this celebration in mind as we consider this passage. So as Israel's history had developed, they had come to understand this this Pentecost festival, this feast of weeks as their anniversary of a nation. It was the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, roughly 50 days after the Exodus. And so they had come to understand this festival as kind of their constitution, their Independence Day, if you will, their official birthday as a nation. So it's this event that has drawn the crowds to Jerusalem in chapter two of Acts. And Luke wants us to see this backdrop because this backdrop gives us a greater understanding of what's going on here at Pentecost and particularly this lengthy quote from the prophet Joel. When we think of Pentecost, as we have also thought about the label Pentecostal. We have different ideas about what the main features of this event are. And and Joel certainly mentions them, this idea of of prophecy and ecstatic utterance. But the giving of the Spirit, along with tongues, along with prophecies, is, is a much bigger deal than just those signs. See, God is here rectifying a problem the problem that Israel had experienced and continues to experience. If you've considered many of the prophets and and this prophet Joel, the greater context is Joel is calling on this unfaithful nation to repent. A nation who has been unfaithful to that law that was given at Mount Sinai. And Joel calls upon the nation to rend their hearts, 
not merely their garments, to call upon the name of the Lord that he might relent from disaster. If you'll recall from Israel's history, right on their birthday, you could say, they reject God's law, (laughs) turning to idolatry. The first of many times, these these golden calves are erected. They, They worship explicitly breaking the covenant that they had just agreed to. And though God will reestablish this covenant, it wasn't before 3,000 souls had died because of idolatry. This long quotation from Joel would itself be a reminder, yes, of a great promise, but also a great problem. The festival of weeks had the joy of Israel's establishment, but was also clouded by their history, by their rebellion. You'll notice if you look at this quotation from Joel, it itself is addressing a problem. Israel, once again, needs salvation. That's what Joel is is, is getting across here, that, that they need to be saved. And this time from a much greater enemy from the nation than the nation of Egypt. They need salvation from themselves, from their own sin. Israel was called at Sinai to be holy, to be set apart to be unlike the surrounding nations. But over and over again, they continue to act just like the rest of the people, even copying their ways of doing things, particularly in worship. And Joel comes and warns the people that the day is coming when God will come and judge. Well, this is the quotation that Joel uses in this Pentecost sermon. But here in the book of Joel, the section that he quotes from is telling of a promise, a realization that that Israel cannot do the turning themselves, but a day will come when God will turn their hearts. He tells of the promises about God bringing about repentance. He promises to do something that the law could never do for Israel. He promises to pour out his own spirit upon all flesh. A promise that is not unique to Joel, is it? We we see this elsewhere in the prophets. Ezekiel says that there will come this great day where God will put his spirit within his people, causing them to obey, giving them a spirit of obedience. And as we understand, as redemptive history unfolds, applying to them the work of Christ and the obedience, his obedience given to us. Joel is telling the people that yes, there is a problem, but God will be faithful despite their failure. That the spirit will bring forth life from dead spaces. Joel speaks of a day when God will turn this disobedient nation into a nation of prophets who tell of the mighty works of God. Here's the the quotation, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. That is entire households will receive revelation from God. 
And upon receiving this, this revelation, we'll begin proclaiming it on this day of the Spirit's coming. And all who hear and believe will be saved. Now, a good Israelite hearing this sermon of Peter would be excited about this. This great day has come. This promised day has come. But there's an issue if you continue reading in Joel. And the issue is that this promise is for Israel, but it comes at the cost of the Gentiles. That Israel receives the promise, but as Joel continues in the passage, if you read from the prophet, that the nations will be judged. The Gentiles will come under the judgment of God. But according to Joel, Israel will get the blessing of the Spirit along with their children, but also those who are far off, the Gentiles as well. And our passage and the book of Acts continues to tell of the global implications of the coming of the Spirit will not merely fall on Hebrew and Aramaic speakers, but on speakers and hearers of all tongues. So how do we square this with Joel's, reality, with Joel's prophecy? Was Joel wrong in what he wrote years and years before this event? How is it that the Gentiles will get in? How is it, as we'll see Acts unfold, that many of the Jews will end up rejecting this gift? Well, the first we see in the Old Testament shadows of Pentecost. Next, I want to see together a second Sinai. Again, Luke wants to place the coming of the Spirit on the anniversary of Israel's constitution as a nation. And just like Israel's Passover finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, who is our Passover, so Sinai, the giving of the law, the constitution of Israel finds its ultimate fulfillment here in the giving of the Spirit. Well, how does that work? Well, let's consider it together. Well, right off the bat, you'll notice some similarities probably, or perhaps you already noticed them as we read these two texts back to back. Many are gathered at one place and down from heaven comes a great thunderous sound. And this theophonic sound fills the space with God's presence. From heaven to earth, God's presence, his, his glory is made manifest. Well, how do we know this is the presence of God? Well, in both cases, it, it tells us, but, but we also get fire, often an indicator of God's presence, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. Our God, who is a consuming fire, manifests himself throughout the Bible in this way. Exodus, the whole story of Exodus really is a showing of this, isn't it? He shows up in this burning bush as flame. And this flame moves to lead the people of Israel through the wilderness. And this pillar of fire moves atop Mount Sinai, as we read this morning, making Sinai a dwelling place of God, a temple for God. And that fire, that consuming fire will move from Sinai to this portable temple, to the tabernacle, showing that God's presence has filled this sacred place. Well, in Acts, we see fire atop God's dwelling place. But here it's divided. It rests atop individuals. 
showing us that they have been filled with the presence of God, just as the tabernacle had been filled with the presence of God. But there's a big difference here. As we read in the Old Testament, the presence of God had to be separated from the people. They had to be had to be mediated. Even in our passage, God speaks to Moses and Moses speaks to the people. And when God does end up speaking to the people, if, if you continue to read, they, they say, please don't have him speak to us anymore. <laughs> we, we can't handle his presence because of his holiness. Even the priest could only enter the Holy of Holies once a year at risk of death. But as we heard and celebrated last week, the ascension that Jesus has ascended into the Holy of Holies as king and as priest. And now on account of his once and for all sacrifice, God's presence can dwell with and in his people. As we see here in these divided tongues of fire, the apostle Paul makes this explicit saying that our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. The glory spirit that filled the temple now fills his very people. As Ezekiel says, I will put my spirit within you. Well, just as we saw at Sinai, when this dwelling comes and this fire is seen, the word of the Lord begins to go out from the dwelling place. At Sinai, he speaks through Moses out of the great glory cloud from atop the mountain. But here at Pentecost, as his presence inhabit people, they begin to prophesy. They begin to tell of the mighty works of God, the text tells us. But something very interesting begins to happen, doesn't it? This group of Galileans is speaking but people are hearing them in many, many different languages. These men that have gathered, these people gathered representing the ends of the earth are hearing prophetic words, but in their own native tongue. And this is informative, informative for us as we consider what the gift of tongues is, that, that it's a gift to the nations, that the people of every tongue might hear and believe and call upon the name of the Lord. And these foreigners are here hearing Christ preached in their own native tongue. Jews, proselytes, and Cretans from all over the known world declare, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What an amazing thing to behold. But what about Joel's prophecy? Did he not know what he was talking about? How are these Gentiles receiving this blessing when Joel said that the nations would receive judgment? Well, I think the New Testament authors explain this to us, that God here, on the anniversary of Israel's constitution, is constituting a true and greater Israel, a kingdom whose borders no, no end. A new creation, Israel, made up of both Jews and Gentiles who call upon the name of the Lord. 
As Paul says in Galatians, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And it is this spirit who has fallen, who is the agent of new creation. And here we are seeing the constitution of the new creation community. The church, the Israel of God, made up of all who call upon the name of the Lord. The apostle Paul tells us that there is no longer Jew or Gentile. It is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. It is those who believe who are like Isaac, sons of promise. The Jews and Gentiles here at the falling of the spirit are made one nation in Jesus Christ. And God here is constituting a greater kingdom than Sinai could ever bring about. One made up of the baptized from every tribe and tongue and nation. But even as we consider the Old Testament, this isn't new news, is it? It was promised to Abraham that through this Israel, through this chosen nation, that all might be blessed. From the mouth of God's people, all the nations would receive the gift of God. This is how Paul understands the gospel being preached to Abraham. He says that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles that they would receive the spirit through faith. And that's what we see here. King Jesus, who has ascended on high, has sent forth from on high his spirit. And as the spirit falls and Peter preaches, the church is born. The festival of ingathering finds its fulfillment in the ingathering of Jews and Gentiles as the benefits of Christ, our true Passover, are applied to all who call upon the name of the Lord. You'll notice here in Acts 2, a great multitude respond. Just as at Sinai, the people are heard the word and respond. They're cut to the heart, if you will. But as many parallels as we see at Sinai, there's also some key differences, differences that are good news for us. You'll recall in our, at Sinai, because of disobedience, 3,000 souls are put to death. But here at Pentecost, 3,000 souls find life because of the giving of the Spirit. At Sinai, the law is given as a teacher to the nation of Israel, a teacher who we find out lacked the power to bring about obedience. But at Pentecost, the spirit is given as teacher, which Jesus tells us. A teacher to a new nation of Jews and Gentiles who believe upon Christ. And this spirit has the power to bring about obedience. At Sinai, the law was written on tablets of stone, but Paul tells us at Pentecost, the law was written on the tablets of our heart. At Sinai, God tells the people that the path to holiness is by way of obedience to the law. At Pentecost, God makes his people holy by applying to them the obedience of Christ earned on their behalf and then indwells them with his presence. At Sinai, God gives Moses a picture of the temple, but at Pentecost, God makes his people into a temple where he will dwell. 
At Sinai, God warns the people that sin separates them from God. But at Pentecost, God offers to wash away sin, to establish a chosen race and a royal priesthood in the waters of baptism, that nothing would separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Just as the Feast of Weeks or Ingathering or Pentecost was the anniversary of the nation of Israel, so today, Pentecost Sunday, is the anniversary and constitution of this church, the Church of Jesus Christ, the Israel of God. So we are a Pentecostal church, Providence Pentecostal Church. It has a nice ring to it. We, we might not see the miracles in the way that we often want, but we are filled with God's spirit. And we know that to be true because we gather here in Christ's name, which is a work of his spirit. And the spirit continues to do miraculous events and works among us. Perhaps the words of this particular preacher does not go out in manifold tongues. But if the word of God has ever landed on your heart, it is because the spirit gave voice to a speaker and hearing to a hearer. Perhaps here you have never seen a a body raised out of a coffin, but if you look to your right and to your left, you will see individuals that have been raised from death to life by the power of the spirit. Maybe you have not heard ecstatic prophecies here, but if you've heard Jesus preach from this pulpit, you've heard Jesus himself by the power of his spirit. Maybe you have never walked on water or seen someone walk on water, but if water has been poured over you in the triune name of God, your sins have been forgiven. And by God's spirit, you have been placed into his son and received all of his benefits. And if you come to this table in faith, this table that is before us this morning, perhaps it doesn't look like a miraculous meal, And yet here by God's spirit, you receive nothing less than Christ and all of his benefits for the full forgiveness of your sin, all by his spirit. And if you come to the Pentecost feast tonight, you'll see Presbyterians dance by the power of the spirit, perhaps new wine. And it is right that we dance. For by God's spirit, we who were once far from God because of sin are now indwelled by the presence of God, that he has made us holy apart from the law, that he has given us life. Great moments in redemptive history always accompany great signs and wonders. But even if you don't see them today, have no doubt that the spirit of God continues to be poured out on all flesh. And the evidence in your life of that, Paul tells us, is if you can confess, Jesus is Lord. 
If you can confess that this morning, then the power of Pentecost is truly upon you. You have received the Holy Spirit. And if you have received the Holy Spirit, you have received the guarantee of salvation. For he has sealed you and continues to seal you this day. Fear not. He is with you. And that same spirit who raised Christ from the grave will raise you and has raised you to newness of life. May God grant us the grace to walk by this spirit today. Please pray with me.